You ever meet somebody and when you ask them what they do and they start to tell you and they're just full body lit up. Like they can't actually believe they get to do this thing that they do for their life. And you ever actually meet somebody and they've been doing that for decades and they still feel the same way, like it's play and they can't wait to do it. That is my guest today, Danny Clinch. Danny is, he probably wouldn't describe it this way, but I will describe him as an iconic music photographer. He has literally toured with, traveled with, photographed nearly every major name in music for the last couple of decades. It has become his life, his consuming passion. He is also a musician who has had the incredible fortune to befriend many of these same people and play on stage with them, sometimes in an organized way, sometimes just in something that kind of magically comes together. At the same time, um, he's raised a family pretty much where he grew up, which is Tom's River, New Jersey, and not too far away in the um, in the legendary, sometimes famous, sometimes infamous, now expanding quickly Asbury Park in New Jersey, um, home of the famed Stone Pony, he decided that he kind of wanted to create a space and give back. And he has opened his own space called the Transparent Gallery that hosts all sorts of things from shows to art to all sorts of uh, musical acts, bands, singers, songwriters, and more recently collaborated with a group of friends to create the See Here Now Festival, which combines music and surfing and art all in one beautiful experience. He is a person who literally just is alive in every part of his life. It was my absolute pleasure to sit down with Danny and explore his early life, the big influences, the seeming sliding doors that completely changed everything in a moment's notice, and how he has crafted a life, he will tell you not entirely intentionally, that seems to fill every nook and cranny and um, makes it really good. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I 
I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I grew up, my dad was a house painter and wallpaper hanger. So very blue collar in, you know, this little community. We were about two miles, maybe a mile and a half, two miles from a place called Shelter Cove, which was a little beach, like a bay, a bay beach, like right off the Toms River, the Barnegat Bay, and that goes into into the ocean eventually. Uh, And we were like really a five-minute, ten-minute car ride from Seaside Heights, Seaside Park. We would go to Ortley Beach as kids. We were – my mom was was always more interested in going to the beach than staying home and – you know, doing the dishes or whatever. Mm. She'd be like, no, we're going to the beach. And I was like, great. And so I rode motorcycles a lot when I was a kid. I, we lived on a dead end street. My dad was a greaser and, uh, I had my first mini bike when I was about five or six and I just started, I kept up in my game. I then had that Honda 50, the one with the folding handlebars, had a couple of those. Then I had a SL 70. Then I had my Honda Elsinore. And then I, you know, I ended up racing a little bit of flat track motorcycles. I I raced a little, um, first I started racing motocross and it was in like about 1981. I was like a junior in high school. And that was the same year that they came out with the monoshock on the new motorcycles. Mm -hmm. So all the rich kids had monoshock, which was way, way, way better than a regular shocks on the mode on the old motocross bikes, which I had a 1975 Honda. And I just like, okay, that's, that's not going to work for me. (laughs) I can't afford the bike. And I was, you know, bouncing around like a, like a jumping bean when everybody else was cruising over the, the jumps. And, uh, and then I did some moto, uh, some flat tracking with a friend of my dad's, which was really cool. Uh, cause he was a, an AMA sanctioned racer, American Motorcycle oh, Association. No he had the leathers, he had the Bull Taco 360. He was like my dad's age and he was going out to a small track that was not AMA sanctioned to race, um, his Bull Taco 360 in these like smaller, like quarter mile tracks just to keep his chops up and to keep himself going, you know, for the bigger races. And he wanted a sidekick to go down with him, help him get his bike out of the back of the truck, 
uh, this, that, and the other thing. And super nice guy. And um, he had a, a BSA 441 Victor, which is an old British uh, motorcycle. Yeah. And the important thing when you're flat tracking is that the shifter is on the right hand side. So it doesn't dig in. So it doesn't leaning. dig in. Yeah. Or you can shift while you're yeah. wiring. Yeah. And so um, he set me up to, to, to race, you know? And it was like the bike was too big for me. And like I had to start it in second gear because there was so much low end in it. It was just like, it was just really fun. So you're like, what, 16, 17 years old at this point? I, I think so. Uh, right. I, I might have been a little older than that. I might have been like 17 or 18, okay. something like that. Yeah. In your mind, is this something that actually you're thinking about doing as like, okay, this is my thing? You know, I grew up riding motorcycles yeah. and I just was enjoying it. Yeah. It was, it was so much fun. And, um, you know, I continued to ride motorcycles, you know, with my dad. You know, we did some a couple of trips out into the Mojave Desert um, where we would go to Las Vegas and rent Harleys and then just take a four-day trip and just wherever it took us. Mm -hmm. We ended up in Pioneer Town out near Joshua Tree and yeah. driving through Joshua Tree and stuff. It was pretty epic. When was the first time you did something like that? Um, hmm. A long uh, time ago. You know, it had to be like 90, I feel like it was... Right around, right before or right after my son was born. Mm. I kind of can't remember. It was like 95, you know, something like that. I mean, my dad and I rode all the time together, but we did that trip. It was kind of like a father and son thing. Yeah. And um, and it was really cool. We went with a friend of mine who was one of my mentors for photography, Timothy White, who's a photographer and a greaser. <laughs> and we just went out and just had a great time. And then we, we did it twice. And then, um, you know, it just has become like a legendary trip between yeah. my dad and I. I right. lost my dad a couple of years ago. Ah, so sorry. So, yeah. Um, you use the phrase greaser a couple of times now. Yeah. I, the, we're the same age, so I, I totally get what you mean. <laughs> but, you know, like when we were coming up, like there were the jocks, the, the greasers, the freaks. <laughs> right. And then there were like, so like the handful of kids that could move between the groups. Right. I moved between the groups. Yeah, I was kind totally. of the same way. Yeah. <laughs> I hung out with the burnouts. We had the burnouts yeah. and the jocks is really what it was. And there are the nerd, you know, the nerds or whatever. Right. And like, I just, I just moved in between all of them. You know, I played soccer. Uh, I was on the swim team and, um, I loved playing soccer and, and swimming. And then I just, I became a lifeguard, but I also ran with the other crowd as well. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, when I was really young, I also got my first camera by going to a, I was, you know, the church that we went to had their vacation Bible school and, um, it's a Baptist church and, and, uh, they had a contest every year, whoever bought the most kids along with them to the, the, you know, the summer camp or whatever it was, day camp, you had a little rocket that was, there was a, a string and there was a rocket on the string. And every time you bought someone, your rocket would get moved forward a little <laughs> right, bit. Right, right. And everybody had a nickname and my nickname was Danny Bones. And cause I was a skinny little kid. Right. And so consequently when Instagram came out and I had no idea what it was, you know, many years ago, they were like, Oh, you got to create a name for yourself. So I put Danny Bones 64 the year I was born and uh, I just never changed it. And I actually like it. But anyway, if you bought the most kids, there was a pile of gifts there or awards or rewards or whatever. You get to pick what's on the pile, you know, and I had my eye on the fishing pole. And as it went along, I, long story short, I came in second and I was hoping that the guy, you know, who beat me or gal who beat me. Anyway, they took the fishing pole. 
And so I was like, hey, give me that camera. So the, <laughs> I'll so take the camera. Like, so the camera was like the consolation. So, I was like, ah, all right, I mean, I'll, I'll, I could, if I have to. I could be a very successful fisherman right now as the story, right. as, as the story goes. Um, but, you know, the, that, that camera ended up, I recall, on the dashboard of my mom's car. And it just melted one night, one day when we went to the beach in the summer, as we always did. And I still took pictures with it. And I think that's informed my photography. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Was, um, when you started taking pictures with it, I mean, so you get the camera. This, it wasn't like, oh my God, I'm drawn to this thing. I have to get a camera. I'm going to save up for it. It's, it was, this was just completely luck of the draw to a certain extent. It, but, it was, but I was already drawing all the time. And, and I was like, you remember, like, they would have like, I forget it was in the TV guide where you could draw like Skippy the yeah. deer or whatever. I can't remember what it was, but you could draw a character on there and then send it in and they would say, well, you should go to art school or right. no, maybe you shouldn't, you know? And I was into, I was into that. I was into painting and art and, and my mom, uh, everything. And, and you could go to my mom's house right now and there's a closet that is literally full of photo albums old school, you know, one hour photo, you know, drugstore developed and just books and books and yeah. books. And I go in there sometimes when I'm at the house and we're at a big family gathering and I've all talked out and stuff. I just, I go in the back and they're like, where's Danny? And I'm like back there <laughs> going through all these photos. It's like in the closet with all the old albums. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And they're so much fun. And now I just whip out my iPhone and I take a photo of like yeah, yeah. me and my buddy from when we were kids. I mean, I feel like we missed that, right? Because when we were coming up, that's how you looked at pictures. Yeah. yeah. First, you got them back in the little envelope. You flipped them open. You had the negatives, and then you had like the prints. Yeah. You know, and then as soon as you could, you got the album, and you place them in. You put the little cellophane over it, and then they would just you know either vanish forever. Every once in a while, you go back, and I feel like there's something that nobody prints stuff anymore. You know, it's all just hey, look at my phone. There's something kind of magical, just kind of mm -hmm. settling into it, like an old chair with this album on your lap and just going page by page, like the physical, tangible. It's like you're taking the journey again. It's so beautiful. Just gave me an idea. Thank you. Um, yeah, so my mom was always taking photos. And then I found out, well, I knew that my grandfather, my mom's dad, always took photographs. And he was an engineer. So my, my mom lived up in Clifton, and then she would go down to Manasquan, New Jersey, in the summer, they had a summer house there. Right. So for those who don't know, this is about two hours away. -ish. Yeah. 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 And so um, my dad was classic from the other side of the tracks, you know, never finished eighth grade, was kind of like a, not a troublemaker, but like didn't follow the rules, you know? And um, <laughs> so anyway, they met um, and, uh, and, you know, my mom got pregnant. And, uh, maybe this is too much information for if my mom's listening, but no, <laughs> but anyway, they met and, uh, my mom got pregnant. My sister was born. They were young. Then I came along. And anyway, my point was they were from two very different worlds. And so my grandfather, my mom's dad was an engineer. He took care of things. He bought things once and he took care of them. You know, that was his MO, you know, they, my grandmother, they were born in like 1914 and they like lived through the depression. They just like really took care of things. And my dad's side of the family was like, they were 
they were poor, they didn't have anything to take care of, <laughs> didn't know how to take care of anything. And, um, and so the, the interesting thing is that I found out later on when I had a discussion with my dad about all the family photos they had, I was like, first of all, they didn't have any money. Photography had to be expensive yeah. then, right? Because you had to pay for everything they're developing yeah. also, yeah. And I was like, well, I see all the family photos and there were a lot of them. And I said, well, who's taking those photos? And he said, well, your grandfather was taking them. And I said, but he's in them. He's in the photos. And he was like, well, look at, look at his hand. His hand is always behind his back because he would run fishing string from the camera oh, no to kidding. the, and he would just click it off and get the family together and click it off. And like, I was like, damn. It's like so the, the OG selfie. <laughs> it was the OG selfie, you know? And I thought, damn, Gordon Clinch coming up with the selfie. Um, but uh, so it turned out both of my parents, my, my grandparents took photos, interestingly enough. And in my dad's side of the family, historically was very creative. Um, his brother, his sister, my dad, and they all were like family business house painters. My, my dad had his brother and then he had like four sisters. But anyway, the, my, my dad and my uncle were house painters. And so was my grandfather. Uh, so you have these sort of like different traditions and different family ethos, but every, it's kind of interesting. It's almost like everything comes together around capturing moments, you know, and, and, and photography and bring. Yeah. When for you does photography become something more? Was it earlier? This happened later. Um, you know, it became something more like, well, you know, interestingly enough, like I started carrying a camera around everywhere. In high school, my, or? my neighbor, yeah, my um, boy. Well, so I had that little camera. Yeah. Then after that camera crapped out, I bought another camera from a yard sale, and then my grandfather gave me his Yashica. It's called a Yashica Lynx One Thousand. I remember. It's in a brown leather case. He took care of everything. As I said, it was a beautiful camera. Of course, I who knows what happened to it, and he gave me that camera. And it was a rangefinder, very much like the Leica that I carry around. So I was able, I learned to use the rangefinder when I was, you know, young. And, and then I, uh, my buddy across the street was one of those kids who, you know, got a job when he was really young. He always worked hard and he always had stuff because he had a job and we were all like, you know, I mean, he was like 13 and he bought, he bought a camera and, and, and then he like bought a guitar and we were all like, damn, Steven, you know, and he, he never used the camera. And like one day I was like, hey man, can I borrow that camera? And he was like, yeah, sure. And then I just <laughs> I kind of and it was yours. <laughs> permanently borrowed it. <laughs> Sorry, Stephen. And so um, I started taking photos all the time. And then I was a big music fan. So I started going to concerts. And um, one of the first times it became something more for me was some friends of mine were big fans of Ted Nugent, right? We were like in high school. They were Ted heads. We, everybody just called them the two Ted heads. It was, you know, Mark and Ed, and they, uh, they just loved Ted Nugent. That's all it was about. And so I found out Ted Nugent was going to play at Six Flags Great Adventure, which is in Jackson, New Jersey. And I got a ticket. And I took my camera, and I went there and photographed the Ted Nugent show. And then I came back. I processed my film, and I blew up some big poster size, you know, for 10 bucks, you could send it out and they'd give you a big poster of Ted Nugent. And I sold them to the guys 
Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, made to a couple of bucks. Yeah. <laughs> and, I was, and I, so it was interesting. So that was kind of like, oh, I can actually make money doing this. And then there was, of course, that moment in your life that we all have where your parents go, okay, well, what are you going to do? You know, what do you want to do for a living? And my father had never finished eighth grade and he always regretted it. He always felt like he was at a disadvantage because he didn't have, you know, proper education. And he said, whatever you want to do, I don't care what it is, you know, I will help you make it happen. If you want to go to school, I'm going to make it happen. And he did. And I ended up, I did look at a lot of the big photography schools and I did look at school of visual arts and things like that. And they, they really intimidated me. And I ended up in Boston and looking at a school called the New England School of Photography, which was a, a trade school, basically. A lot of veterans, a lot of people who wanted to be commercial photographers or wedding photographers and stuff. Mm. But I went up there and I felt very comfortable there. It was very blue collar. The dark rooms were like not perfect. Um, you know, like you go to school of visual arts and everything was all shiny and dialed in and everybody was so cool there. And I was like, well, I think I'll go up here, you know, yeah. and it was a lot easier on the pocketbook, I think for my parents. So I went there and I loved it. And I met, you know, a lifelong friend there. I had a great experience. One of the cool things was that one of my instructors, Susan Wilson, was a photographer for the Boston Globe and she covered the music section. And so when we were doing assignments and I said, you know, everybody was going out and photographing like homeless people or, you know, their parents and stuff like that. Like I said, oh, I want to go find a rock band and, and hang out with them. And she was like, oh, cool. You know, and I really felt like, I don't know if it was another teacher, maybe it would have been different, you mm. know, or I mean, or maybe not, but I, she encouraged me anyway. And, um, and I started to hang out with a couple of bands there up in Boston. Just like local um, bands at yeah, clubs. Yeah. yeah this, uh, specifically a band called Rick Berlin, the movie. And he was in a band called Berlin Airlift that came up really with the talking heads and they played with the talking heads on double bills and probably played CBGBs and all yeah. that. And, um, Rick is just a very eccentric guy, really cool. And great songs and never, never got the nod, you know, as people, as people do. Um, and so it was exciting. I hung out with them in the recording studio. I went to their gigs. I remember jumping in a van with them, like for the first time and driving out to, you know, Cambridge or something for some gig. And it was just so exciting. And they were, they were a very visual band. It was a big band. It had three or, you know, three backup singers and like the guitar player was super cool looking. And like, I just, man, I really loved it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds like it's, it's the coming together of two worlds because it sounds like you were also a big fan of music just in general. Absolutely. And which is kind of funny too, because like back then we're talking like late eighties, early nineties, right? This was also kind of the era. Of, this was like, this was a weird time in music actually, because you've got well, like- Well, for me, it was 80, it was like 84. So mid eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Because I went two years to a community college, to okay. Ocean County College. And then I did the two years in Boston. So it was 83, 3, it was 80, 84, 85 ish. Yeah. Because yeah. we're coming out of the, the, the days of, of um, we're kind of past classic rock. We're coming out of the days of Kiss and like the big hyper visual, like super mm -hmm. shows coming into hair metal, <laughs> like yeah. the, the big hair bands. And for me, like a little more of like weird indie rock, like, yeah. um, you know, like, Till Tuesday and yeah, yeah. the Del Fuegos right, man. and, um, you know, a band called, what was that one? Oh, Positive I don't and 
like three colors and uh, morphine and stuff yeah. like that. And new cool. wave, like because I remember yeah. Long Island WLAR was like the hot new wave station, and yes, that was new wave, of course. Yeah, flock of seagulls, all like that. Yeah, that's that kind of what stuff. Rick Berlin was, kind of new oh, no wave, kidding. like Talking Heads ish, but it was cool. Yeah, it's interesting too because it sounds like you were. It's like when you tell the story of sort of like jumping in a van with them, traveling around. It's like you're telling the the photographer side of like sort of like the main character and almost famous. <laughs> right. To a certain extent, right? Yeah, yeah. You're just like, and you're just, your eyes are bugging out and you're like, yeah, this is cool. And then all the people that you admired, you know, growing up, like, you know, the early Annie Leibovitz photos and Henry Diltz and Jim Marshall and Bob Gruen and stuff. And you're like, you're like, you're seeing those images flash before your eyes or like, or behind your eyes, you know, like, and you're trying to, you know, take that photo that felt like that moment that you saw, you know, of, you know, Bob Gruen photographing John Lennon in the studio or something, you know? Yeah. So you were a student of, of those people also yeah. then. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. 
When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're going out there in the early days, I mean, because there's this interesting tension too, right? On the one hand, you've got this love of photography that's been developing and and it sounds like also really a passion to get better at it, a passion to be able to really capture astonishing things. And at the same time, you've got a love of music, you know, and one of the rules of, of really embracing and being present in music is basically just to be there, you know? So did you feel, and maybe to this day, do you feel at all a tension between just being hyper-present in the moment of the music and this other thing where it's like, okay, I'm... I can't be fully present because part of my brain is thinking, how do I capture this? Mm. You know, maybe early on, because you're like really are overthinking it and you're trying to like, you know, but like these days I almost feel like I'm part of, strangely, I, I feel like, and I don't mean it in a, where I'm trying to insert myself <laughs> into anything, but just, I feel, feel like you're part of the band, you know, you're like part of the, like, this is my instrument and... And I play music as well. So like, I, I like, I can feel the buildup. Like I can like, like I'm, I'm just like, you know, if I was like, I play harmonica in a blues band and a lot of times I just lay out, I lay out, I lay out, I lay out. And then you see, you feel it building up and you see your like little spot and you get in there and you get it and then you get out, you know? And, uh, I've never really thought of it, like verbalized it, but that's kind of in a way that happens, you know, I'm there with my camera and I, and like, you know, I, I now have a, you know, a sixth sense of like when the shit's going to happen, you know, and I can anticipate it and I kind of lay out so that I'm not in people's way so that I'm hiding in the shadows. And then when I feel like it's building up and I need to get out in there and, and, you know, I'm allowed, often I'm allowed on the stage behind the drum kit or behind the amplifier which is something that's taken me years to develop the trust of people to allow you to do that. And then, you know, you can get this really unique point of view. And, uh, and so it, it's exciting, you know, it, it, it's exciting to be a part of it. And, and, uh, I, I like being in the middle of it versus having a super long lens and being across the room, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so when you're um, back up in Boston, you start traveling around with bands and then you're coming back from this um, two-year program, four-year program at Boston? Two-year. Right. So it comes a time where you actually, you're done with that. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a decision. Okay, so where am I going with all this? Yeah. Um, so I came back and um, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, Maria, was going to FIT. And like I had, I was also working out a one-hour photo and I was, I was like, I was lifeguarding uh, between college, and then I also was working out a one-hour photo. And the guy, this guy Jack um, Belusky, had a one-hour photo studio in the back. And when I got done with college, um, he said to me, 
my guy, my portrait guy just quit. And um, I know this isn't what you want to do, but here's the keys. If you do the every once in a while engagement photo, family portrait, uh, you know, whatever, kid photos, um, I'll just give you the keys and you can photograph whatever you want in the studio and I'll pay you, you know? And I was like, great. So he gave, he gave me this studio and I photographed there, you know, family portraits and all that stuff. And, um, and then my, my girlfriend, uh, at the time was at FIT and she did a study abroad and like where I come from, I was really the first in my family, I think, to go to college, mm. you know? My mom went to nursing school and my my grandfather, of course, but like in our immediate family, just people didn't go to college. They were blue collar on my dad's side, especially. And that's where the bigger part of the family was. And so um, I didn't know you could study abroad and I didn't know you could do anything like that. And I was like, wow, she went to study like Shakespeare or something in London. And I was like, wow, that's cool. And then I, I started to think, what could I do like that that would be something exciting? And I decided to do a photographic workshop, and which I highly encourage anybody to do because, you know, you go to this workshop and it's all like-minded people who, who are interested in photography and, uh, you know, there's a lot of common conversations going on and inspiration and stuff. And so I looked around and I found this workshop. It was the Ansel Adams Gallery workshop. It was mm -hmm. in Yosemite. Wow. And it was Annie Leibovitz and David Hockney. Oh my gosh. And <laughs> I believe that they told Annie that David was doing it. And then they told David that Annie was doing it. And they the were both like, never, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. And they, they both showed up and there were, there were two other photographers. I, I should research it and find out who they were because it's unfair not to mention them. But I pretty much skipped out on everybody's class and went to Annie's and David's, you know. Understandable. And this and was in Yosemite also? It was in Yosemite. And wow. I honestly didn't really know who David Hockney was. I had to do a little research. But he had just put out that book of Polaroids. Yeah. So he's a photographer, you know. So, and I knew Annie. I, Annie was like my hero. Right. You know? And she's New York based also. Yeah. So I go out there and I do the Friends of Photography. And then I book another workshop after that called um, The Photograph as a Document. And that was at Friends of Photography, which was also an Ansel. It was in Carmel, California. It was also an Ansel Adams affiliated thing. He wasn't alive anymore, but um, it was very exciting. And so anyway, I do the workshop with Annie and her assistant, a guy named Dave Rose. And I kind of hit it off and like I was helping him out and this and that. And like sort of towards the end of the, the workshop, he said, you know, uh, Annie's looking for an intern at her studio. And and after that, I was going to go to LA and I was going to go see if I could get an internship. Like I was like, I thought of Annie, I thought of like um, her Brits and uh, a bunch of other people, you know, that I had in mind. And um, so I had a trip, a trip planned after the workshops for like another week or so in, in California, which I had never been to. And so Dave said, uh, she told me, you know, to keep my eye out for someone who would be a good a good intern here. And, and, uh, you know, I mentioned you and she agreed and she, you know, before she asks you, I wanted to know, are you, you know, you were interested in interning at the studio in New York. And I was like, Oh, I just checked my calendar and I happened to be free for <laughs> forever. And then she asked me, you know, to intern at the studio. And I was like, absolutely. So my whole, then I went to and did the, the photograph as a document, which was, I think it was, it was Bruce Davidson 
and it was, um, I'll have to come back to it. Um, and then after that, I didn't have to worry about getting a job. I got to go and enjoy, hang with friends in California and stuff. And I came back to New York. I started sweeping floors, getting coffee, making coffee, running errands. This is all working Annie, with Annie. Yeah. With Annie. And then I ended up working my way up to basically traveling with her as one of her assistants and working on like incredible stuff like the American Express campaign and, you know, like Bruce Springsteen, Tunnel of Love record, you know, photographing in excess and Ella Fitzgerald. And like, I mean, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. And, um, and she's, uh, she is a taskmaster and she doesn't settle for any silliness and she means business, you know, and I really learned a lot from her and, um, and she was uh, just a huge inspiration for me. And, you know, as far as stories goes, I, re I recall we would be doing a gig and I was on staff and we hired a lot of freelance people cause her productions were big and people would come in and they would be like, uh, you know, we'd be on a four day gig, like, you know, we're shooting this big gig or whatever. And, uh, you know, second day in, you know, we're working our butts off and like, you know, just really like back in those days, pre-digital, like she would pay or the client would pay the lab to stay open at night for us. And we would have a full shoot day and then we'd come back and we would do a film test and we would yeah. test every film, different batches of film, all with five different filters, warming filters. And then we'd keep the lab open till two in the morning. We would run the, run the shit. We'd go back, we'd go to sleep. We'd get up early before she came in. We would lay out all the film and she would go, okay, we're shooting this filter on this batch of film, you know, in this light and this batch of film and filter on another light, you know, whatever the different situations were that we were going to do. It was crazy. And so what, you know, we would say like, okay, you know, so-and-so, uh, we'll, we'll see you tomorrow. Same time. And the guy went, no, I'm not coming back. <laughs> I mean, so like I mean, every day you're losing yeah. like 20% yeah. of your crew or something yeah, and like that. We'd be like, what do you mean? Really? He goes like, no. And finally one guy pulled me aside and he was like, Danny, Danny, come here. I'm like, what? He said, Listen, man, I work with so-and-so, and we work nine to five. We photograph beautiful models. We drink wine at lunch. You should come work with us. <laughs> I was like, that sounds awesome, but I belong here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just, I stuck it out, and it was, it, was, it was really great. It opened a lot of doors for me. Her agent also worked with um, Stephen Mizell, and I worked with Stephen Mizell. Another legend. Another legend, business, yeah. uh, fashion photographer. I mean, I learned so much from him. And funny enough is... As much as I felt like my inspiration has always been Annie, you know, big inspiration come, coming up, I learned a real lot from Steven. You know, his approach is very simple. And um, even as a fashion photographer, it's like it got more complicated as things went on, but his, his approach was very simple. It was very Avedon influenced. And, um, and not only did I learn how to light things in the studio, like beautiful portraiture lighting, um, he saw natural light existing light in a very interesting way and it, it was like really eye-opening to me that he would take a chance and shoot a very long shutter speed at night like as the light was disappearing on a rooftop and he would just go for it and then i would see it and i'd be like wow i would never have shot in that light you know and um so that was exciting and i worked with mary ellen mark who's a great one of the master documentary photographers um and then of course my friend timothy white who's a great mentor you know, for me as well. Yeah. So, I mean, as you're going, you have this stunning experience. I mean, you go from, you know, a kid in a water town in New Jersey, you know, to this place in Boston, bopping around in the back of a van with a couple of people trying to make it as musicians. And 
I mean, it's, it's so interesting to me. Like I'm, I'm fascinated with the concept of sliding doors. We've talked about it a handful of times on the podcast, like people who drop into your life or moments where you make a choice, you know? So it's almost like this, I wonder, you know, had your then girlfriend, now wife, not decided to do a semester overseas, like how profoundly different might your life be right now? Because that was the thing that made you say, well, what am I going to do? <laughs> That led yeah. you out. That that takes you out to Yosemite. That gets you meeting Annie, which brings you back to New York, which steeps you in this. You know, one of the icons in the business, and then sends you on this trail, working with a series of other icons. And there are certain people who I meet, and I wonder if you feel the same. And where I ask that question, I'm like, could it be profoundly different. But then there's something inside of me that says, somehow, in some way, I wonder if there's just something inside of you that would have gotten you to a substantially similar place because it was something inside of you that just, it was finding its way out one way or another. And maybe this was the particular way, but either way, it would have landed you there. Well, people say to me, of course, they're like, oh my gosh, you're so lucky. You, you know, got to work with Annie Leibovitz. And I was like, well, no, I wasn't lucky. Like I wasn't, I wasn't home watching TV eating Cheetos and she called me, you know, I was like out there making stuff happen. And it's like, you know, somebody said to me recently, the harder I work, the luckier I get, you know? <laughs> and so I was like, I'm like, yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's the way it I'm goes. not lucky. No, I'm working hard and, you know, fortunate, you know, because I, you know, and I, and I learned that from my parents, you yeah. know, my dad was a workaholic and, and he had a great time when he, he loved what he did. He loved hanging wallpaper. He loved painting. He loved to work hard. And because when he was off, he liked to play hard. He liked to have a good time. He always had time for the kids. He was always a jokester. And um, and uh, he was, in fact, just a legend in our community and in our family and everybody that knew him. Yeah. Because he was that kind of guy. And he always had time for everybody. He always, you know, he and my mom always given back to the community, all of my cousins, uh, all the black sheep in my family and all the black sheep of our friend's family, they lived at our house. You know, they got kicked out of their house. They lived on our downstairs. <laughs> and yeah. It's like, and, and, and we were better for it. You know, our life experiences that we, you know, that the give back that we got from it. And my mom to this day, she's like 30 years in of working at the local soup kitchen, you know, and it's just, you know, those are the people that informed my growing up. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's interesting to also to, to see that value set. And that also exists in this world of these super high-end, super exclusive people who are at the absolute top of their field. You know, um, people are lining up to work with them, pay, very often being paid an astonishing amount of money also, and working with subjects who are some of the most famous people in the world. And sort of like knowing that, you know, you're, you're living in this world for this moment in time during the day, but you come from this other world with a very different value set and, and, and a very different sort of like lens on the world. And then trying to figure out how do we make my life so that these weave together in a way that feels good to me? Yeah. I mean, you sent me off on a daydream, you know, like when I, cause, cause that's what I think about all the time. You know, it's like, it's like I'm home with my family and it's, it's so incredible. And, uh, then I'm off with Eddie Vedder in Barcelona photographing for a project we were, we're working on together and I'm just like this is incredible and it's like it's like I don't know to balance that out because it's such a high to be out with 
you know, someone like Ed or with, with like My Morning Jacket or Bruce Springsteen or whoever it might be, Preservation Hall Jazz Band. And those have been the, really the most valuable things I got out of my career are friendships with people that are super creative and not even just the artists themselves, but the guitar techs and the managers and the publicists and the, just the good people that tend to be drawn to music is really incredible. And it's an incredible buzz to know those people and to hang out with them. And, you know, there's so much creativity flowing and, and goodness. And then, you know, I go home and I just get to settle into my family and like have that life as well. So I feel really blessed. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you describe the people in the industry that way also, because so much of what you would hear in popular conversation is not framing them in that way, is telling a different story, is telling a different, uh, you know, a story of want, a story of extravagance, a story of, mm. you know, greed and power and yeah. an excess, you know? And what's interesting is, you know, from the inside out, from from what you see out and from the lens that that you shoot when you look at your images, you see the story in the images that you shoot that you just told, not the ones you see different. Like I, I think so many people are drawn to your images. Maybe I can't speak for so many people. I'm so drawn to your images because they reveal so much shared humanity. You could be shooting something in the most surreal, big, giant, extravagant, you know, arena or something like that, but there's something about what you captured that is almost simple and human, you know, mm. the, the moment. And I wonder how much of that comes from you. Well, I, I, I think it is about, about moments and I think it's about your editing, what images you choose to show the world. And, and like, I am into the intimacy of it and the relationships of, the bands, you know, amongst themselves, the relationship between them and the audience, the relationship between them and the venue or the relationship of them and their instrument and things like that. And I also feel like I'm drawn to people who are, um, you know, some of these folks, and I know, I know them, you know, well, they're, they're like, they're not a lot of them in, you know, from the outside, it may not appear that way, but I honestly feel like a lot of them are like, you know, sure, they're, I mean, they're grateful and they're super wealthy. Being like, I think some of them are uncomfortable with it, you know, like uncomfortable with the amount of money they're making for what the amount of fun they're having. And, um, and like the people that I'm drawn to and the one, the friendships that I've collected, and I'm careful to say who my friends are, but the ones that are my friends, like they're people, they're, they're giving back to their community. You know, I mean, the Dave Matthews band, the, the list of charities, if you go on their website, it's, it's like in the hundreds, like they give back so much to their community and then he does farm aid and then he, do, you know, so look at, you know, Willie Nelson giving back all the time, Jack Johnson, you know, creating uh hashtag like BYO bottle, bring your own bottle, like to protect the, you know, single use plastic, Jackson Brown, um, Bruce Springsteen giving back to the community, Eddie Vedder fish with their, with their foundation. I, I would hate to leave many, there's many. And those are the people that I end up, you know, becoming friends with strangely. And they inspire me to give back to the community. And, and, you know, I have a gallery in Asbury park called the trans, uh, transparent gallery. And, um, it was generally, it was literally a pop-up gallery that, um, was offered to me, um, from iStar who, 
built the Asbury Hotel and is building a lot in Asbury Park and really helping the community come back. And we do a lot of community events there for for the local high schools and and, and colleges, and they they, they do uh, field trips to the gallery uh, for you know the underserved community, um, whether it's a photography class or young mothers uh, that there's a there's a um, in that area there's a one of the col- one of the high schools allows the the young mothers to to go to school and continue school and bring their kids mm-hmm. to school and all that stuff. So we do a lot of that for the community. And, you know, between being inspired by what Pearl Jam does for their community and what my mom and dad have always done for their community, I'm just, I'm just kind of following in their footsteps. And, and, um, you know, it's, um, I, I mean, I think it's, it's a great influence on me and I really kind of gravitate towards people like that. It's just, it's just super cool in my opinion. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely seems like it. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. We kind of jumped, you know, like we made a big leap in time from sort of, uh, yeah, you know, like working with that. track easily. <laughs> it's okay. Well, <laughs> eventually we'll piece it all together. It, you know, um, you know, we, we kind of started out with you starting in the career and working with Annie and Mizell and these guys. And, and then, um, your probably last 20 years or so, you know, really the body of work that you've stepped into and built, um, is, is in the world of music, you know, like uh, photographing and, and film. Right, so it's yeah. not just photography at this point too. Music in the world of musicians. What is it like? Because you could have gone in so many different directions with the background that you had. You could have been broad. You could have just kept it wide and said, like, I'm going to do fashion. I'm going to do music. I'm going to do travel. I'm going to do whatever comes my way. That's interesting. But, but you made a, like a, a very deliberate decision to say, like, this is my thing, and I'm curious. Did you actually make that it, it decision or did deliberate. it just happen? Yeah, yeah it wasn't as deliberate as that, to be yeah. honest, because, you know, the people that I admire, you think about, you know, Annie Leibovitz and Richard Avedon and 
Irving Penn would be good examples of this type of photographer. You know, they solved all sorts of photographic uh, problems, let's say. Um, they did fashion. They photographed presidents and and great artists and actors, and they did still life. And they've all, you know, they've all, you know, sort of went out and were really weren't pigeonholed. They were portrait photographers and doing doing that specifically. And I feel like, you know, I, of course, wanted to be, you know, Irving Penn or Annie Leibovitz and just been like, you know, I go out and shoot something for DR and then I come back and photograph, you know, Bruce Springsteen or, you know, something like that. And, and like, I chase that and I, and I still, I still do, but I, I just was so drawn to music. I, I'm just such a big fan of music and they're like my people, you know? And so after a while, I just, I stopped worrying about it. For a long time, I was trying not to pigeonhole myself as a music photographer. But after a while, it's like I got my start in hip hop. I did the Nasillmatic, you know. I did Pete one of early Pete Rock and CL Smooth records. I did the Dark Side record by Redman, and a lot of like obscure, not obscure to hip hop fans, but OC and Big L and Capone and Noriega and Heavy D, Blue Funk, and like like I started doing that, and then that sort of segued into the rock and roll musicians of that time, Smashing Pumpkins, the Chili Peppers, Perry Farrell, like they all loved hip hop. So like when my portfolio went across their eyeballs and they saw, oh man, he photographed like Public Enemy and Run DMC, like whatever. And that stuff opened doors for me there. And then I segued into Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Bruce Springsteen and Pearl Jam. And like, and so I, I kind of opened up and got these great opportunities through a lot of really awesome assignments to do everyone from Tony Bennett to Metallica, you know, and everything mm. in between. And I, I love that. That's something I'm really proud of that I have never been pigeonholed into one genre of music. And, you know, that's opened the door to really anybody that I photograph. I, and I've done, I've photographed, you know, sports figures. I did, you know, Lionel Messi and uh, Aguero and like all these great soccer players. I'm a big fan of soccer. And and um, and I did the U.S. basketball team, the last Olympics. And all these people, it's very interesting. Their connection is music. Like if you want to connect with somebody, you talk about, hmm. you know, what, what's your, what, you know, what music are you listening yeah. to? Or like, and I, I find a way, you know, humbly to just say like, yeah, I did this. I did Nas Elmatic. I did the first Kanye West record, uh, you know, and and people are like, "What?" And then I like, and I also did like this legendary Tupac photograph. So like, there aren't a ton of great Tupac photographs out there, and I have one of them. And it's quite fun, really, to to show somebody this photo, and, and when we're having a conversation about maybe what what my past is and what I've done in hip hop or this that, and I go, "Oh yeah," and I took this photo. And watch the expression on right, someone's like, that face. Was you. They're like, "What <laughs> happened yeah. with Gary Clark Jr.?" I got to photograph Gary, and we became friends. And before we were, we really got to know each other. We were with a mutual friend, and and he goes, "Hey, did you show Gary the? You know, you know, you're putting your book together, and you know, you showed me those Tupac images." And, and Gary's like, "What Tupac? Tupac what? What?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, yeah." And I like pulled out my phone and I scrolled through and I, I showed him the photos, and he was like, "I had that poster hanging on my wall when I was a kid." And, um, so anyway, uh, music has allowed me, it's a great entry to anyone I photograph. And when I did, actually, when I photographed Lionel Messi, 
I brought a bunch of my music photos and I, mm. I literally printed them up really big and I laid them out on a table. And when his creative director came over, I said, I want to show you the images that got me this job. And it was Iggy Pop, it was Tupac, you know, U2, Bruce Springsteen and like Green Day or something, you know? And the guy went through and he was like, oh my God, uh, like you took that Tupac photo? Oh, yeah. You, oh, when U2 comes to town, I, I take Bono around town and, you know, mm. and like it went from getting like five minutes, literally, I flew to Barcelona to have five minutes with Lionel Messi. It went from five to 10 minutes. And like, it's a huge difference, you know, to double your time. And um, it's just the power of music <laughs> in many ways is strong. Yeah, well, especially in you and, th and through you. Um, it's funny, you know, like I, I can see because we're hanging out in the studio together and people can probably hear it in your voice. But when you, when you talk about music and musicians and your love it's like you physically just become super animated it's like you come alive yeah. it's almost like yeah I, I mean do you feel like you're almost like a kid playing i mean yes it's hard work but when you wake up and you're like okay so i get to go out and do these two things that i love you know like mm -hmm. I, I get to i get to take my camera you know, and that, you know, was started to a certain extent through my mom and through my grandpa and that first thing that he passed down and then, and then go out into the world and like do this thing that I love and be around these people where, but for the fact that I'm actually getting paid to be here and do this, I would pay anything to be here and do this. You should see the long line of people that are like, I'll carry your hand, man. <laughs> any day, I mean, like, I, you know. I do feel that way. And I, I feel like, you know, in a sense, I'm like, I'm documenting like musical history. So I'm a documentary photographer, you know, and it's hard to tell your kids to go out and work hard when they see their father's like having the time of his life <laughs> doing his job. And I'm like, listen, I waited tables too. And I, you know, washed dishes and I, you know, schlepped gear and all that sort of stuff. But I'm honored to do it. And, you know, back to that other question of, of like, I've settled into being a music photographer and I think about it and I think, you know, one of the things I, I always say is music is, is medicine, you know, it's, it is, it's, it's like it, you know, you celebrate with music, you get through hard times with music, you know, you hear a song and it brings you back to a great time in your life or or whatever. And, and like, when I realized that, that's when I realized that I didn't care to be pigeonholed as a music photographer necessarily. And that I'm fine with it. If that's going to be my, my legacy, you know, I'm all for it. And I've stretched out, out of it, you know, making films and, uh, and, and other things. And, and like I said, photographing actors and musicians and doing some other, uh, projects, but I'm good with it because I think music is, um, is so important in people's lives. And, uh, you know, somebody, if, you know, if I can share that work with people and like, I always started taking photographs and sneaking my camera into, into shows. I mean, as a teenager, you know, when you went to a show with me, you knew a couple of things. One, you were going to have to shove a lens down your pants. <laughs> I was going to shove the body down my pants and then Maria was going to take all the film and put it in her purse. And then we would meet inside. So you knew that part. And then you knew I was going to grab all my shit and put it together. And I'd be like, see you at the end of the show, you know, cause I was going down and, and photographing and, you know, it just is, it was like an obsession for me and continues to be just, and I love rolling up at a concert or, 
you know, wherever I go with my camera and if a moment's going to happen, I'm going to grab it, you know, and sometimes you may not know whether I'm getting paid or not because it doesn't, because <laughs> sometimes I am and sometimes yeah. I'm not. Right. Are you getting paid in another way? Yeah. Getting paid just because exactly. it's exactly. the thing you can't not do. Um, yeah. But it's kind of a magical place to be in. I mean, to be able to build your living, you yeah. know, in yeah. that way is, is a real gift. It really um, is. Before we came to the studio, we were just chatting a little bit about, we, we both have daughters and about the same age. And you were sharing that. It sounds like she's starting to get the bug a bit also. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, I kind of feel like, you know, it happened to her by accident and, 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 you know, probably something that people, people talk about a lot is Instagram and, you know, cameras and like, everybody's got a camera now. You don't have to know anything about photography. You can just take a picture, whether it's with a digital camera that's got autofocus everything, or if you have your phone. Right. And, you know, I've always felt really grateful that I can walk down the street no matter where I am and see beautiful light coming through a window, a shadow, a shaft of light, the way this pattern is on the thing. And like, like I always felt so grateful that when I walk down the street, I can appreciate those things. And I think with um, the change in everybody having a phone and people starting to share their images online, that people are learning to appreciate that stuff more than they ever did. And I find that to be a positive. And I think that my daughter, Nina, kind of, you know, she was shooting on her phone and I was like, you know, damn, like she's like, sees the light really well and composition. And like, I see she takes a bunch of pictures and then like, I see her choices of the pictures that she likes. And I'm like, she's made the right choice in my opinion. And, um, and so she, started to get into photography and she said, you know, do you have a camera that I can use? And I like, I gave her a digital like snapshot camera that I had and, or I bought her one for her birthday and she, you know, beat that one up until it didn't work any longer. And then I handed her this little contacts uh, T3, which is really a sweet camera. Um, it doesn't, you might not know it if you didn't know, it just looks like a regular snapshot camera, but it's a film camera with a very sharp lens and, uh, and just creates beautiful photographs. And she started shooting with it. And I see just a natural eye, you know, and like you can, you know, people, it's pretty simple. Most of the time people either, they either get it or they don't, you know, and you can see it when somebody gets it. And I feel like she's getting it, which is kind of cool, but she's, she's told me that she, she doesn't really have an interest in pursuing photography necessarily. But she's interested in, you know, in marketing and social media as most kids are. And, you know, it will continue to be a help in her storytelling, whether she does it professionally or just on her social media or whatever. Yeah. I, th I think it's so amazing also to, um, so my daughter has an interest in photography also, and she shoots both digital and film. And I think it's so fascinating as a parent to see the world the way your child sees it, you know, because it's just that it's like you said the the way they frame a photograph the things that they choose to mm -hmm. put in and to keep out the angles that mm -hmm. they use you know it doesn't just tell you about you know the way they want the shot it it gives you sort of like this hint into the way that they actually see the world what they see and what they don't see and how they see it yeah and i think as a parent i've noticed it's a, it's a real gift, you know, to just sort of sit back and, and look at, you know, your kids' pictures, not just for like, oh, cool shot, but right. actually just to kind of like 
oh, so this is like for a moment, I can kind of see the way they're seeing the world right. and experiencing what they're the world. Yeah. And and at that age, there just there just aren't any rules yet. Yeah. You know, and you know it's they're, you they haven't settled into a, a particular style or you know it's like you're still taking chances you're still figuring it out and um it's nice it's just you know it's kind of like that thing like well i'm not artistic you know like you know, i'll say well yeah show me your drawings when you were a kid i bet they were pretty good <laughs> you know and you know it's before people enforce you know rules on you yeah you um you brought up the gallery mm -hmm. in asbury park yeah. um asbury park like is so what's interesting is it's was it 45 minutes from where you grew up, basically, yeah. an hour from where you grew up? So pretty close to home. Asbury Park also has a pretty powerful history. Um, yeah. Rough and tumble, also big music town. Yeah. But it, and it's been through its times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I grew up around there. And like when I was a kid, if we went to the Stone Pony, you stayed out of the rest of the, the town. And then, um, you know, of course, there's the legend of Bruce Springsteen. And then there's, um, you know, basically it was shit town for the longest longest time and there's a lot of um you know starts and stops and you know where you thought that you thought it was going to take off and you're wondering like how could this not come back it's like a it's in between two really really wealthy enclaves of of the jersey shore and then it's just like on each side it stops and it's just like it's just like scary you know and and of course as i remember you know you go to um the convention hall there and the Paramount Theater. And in Convention Hall, you know, aside from the Springsteen thing, all the great rock and roll bands of the 60s played there. The Stones, The Who, The yeah, Doors, like Janis yeah. Joplin, Pink Floyd. They all played there. Everybody but the Beatles. They all, you, Zeppelin, it's all, it's all there. You know, and then I used to bring rock bands down to Hasbury Park when they would say like you'd be like in the 90s and they'd say like you know we want something gritty but we don't really want to do like New York City gritty like we want to do something a little different and I'd be like oh I got the spot and we would you know I'd say I'll meet you in Asbury Park or we'd all jump in a van and go to Asbury Park and literally would have the whole city of Asbury Park to ourselves and it'd be nobody there nobody and just killer architecture real patina like old buildings and you could some were boarded up some were just beautiful old you know like it was it was it was great and so i continued to go there over and over and you know and then i would come back and i'd go to the stone pony and then like i started you know chasing every photo op i could and i was like obsessed with capturing different musicians and you know i was always looking for bruce springsteen at the stone pony and you know never see him you know and then of course i went this past weekend my friends uh were playing with gary talent who was in the e street band um the bob and mike delavante they they were one of the first bands i photographed um when i finished working with annie i was living in um hoboken and my roommate there turned me on to the delavantes at the time the band was called who's your daddy and, um, and we remained friends. They were like one of the first bands I photographed, you know, for publicity and they were playing with Gary talent. So I was like, Oh, I'm going to go to the show. They were opening for Southside Johnny and Southside Johnny just puts on a rock and just like always a great show. It, it never gets old. It's such a great rhythm and blues band. It's incredible. And I get there and I look over and there's Bruce and Bruce hasn't done a set with Southside Johnny in about 10 years, uh, you know, a, a set of note, like a long set. And um, hadn't played at the Stone Pony in many years. And uh, 
And next thing you know, you know, Bruce is up there with a full R&B band, horns, you know, Southside. The two of them are like, you know, thick as thieves. They've been doing it together forever, and they're just like throwing it down. And uh, it was, it was kind of epic. And um, so I, uh, I ended up getting this opportunity to have this gallery. And um, it was basically like I didn't want it to be a white glove gallery. I, I, if I was going to do it, I wanted it to be like a community kind of space, like a real great hang space. And so, so I, I, um, I said, look, I'll do it, but you know, can we, can we do something cool here? You know, like I'd like to have, I want to have a back line. I want to have a drum kit, you know, uh, bass amp, guitars, amplifiers. Just and, like there. Yeah. Just yeah. have it there. Yeah. I want to put down like Oriental rugs on the floor. I want to like really vibe it out. And like, they have these huge windows and we, we they, you know, we want to put like vinyl imagery in the windows so that when you drive by at night, it's glowing for, it's like a light, big light box or in the daytime when you're mm. inside, it's a big light box. And they were like, they were like, yeah, right, let's do it. You know, we'll, we're, we're ready to do this. And, um, and ironically, a friend of ours, uh, Maria uh, and I, Tina Karekis had a kind of a, a, a showroom on the boardwalk that where she sold, secondhand like mid-century modern furniture she had like you know albums in milk crates and like cool art on the wall and just like really awesome style and very personable woman and really cool and i was like hey um she just lost her lease in her spot and i said let's just combine this shit right we'll bring it in there and you know you want to run the gallery it's only a couple of months but let's you know do let's do this she was like yeah so we we bought um, all of her furniture in there and like the place really just, you know, shaped up into this very cool place to hang out. And she was, she's not precious about the furniture, even though it's for sale. Like you could sit on the couches and like everybody's hanging out and people are bringing, you know, a bottle of wine in there. And then we like my friend, Rachel Anna Dobkin, um, who I met when we had our first live music event there um, said like, I know a lot of the local musicians. Like you want me to like organize some music next weekend. And I was like, sure. And so she's like, all these young bands, low light, um, Mercury brothers, Cranston Dean, uh, Pam Flores. And like, uh, and just, you know, Maddie Carlock, like all these cool people would just come over and, and do like, you know, a 40 minute set or whatever. And then like, I would sit in with some of the bands, you know, and play my harmonica and just have a great time. And so, Long story short is like after the three months we're up there, like, wow, this is kind of cool, you know, like, you know, why don't you stick around? And we stuck around and we started doing those community events I was telling you about. And like, mm -hmm. you know, and then people started getting word that we were there and we literally would get emails and or phone calls from all over the world. You know, like a lot of Italians, um, you know, um, people from Spain and even Australia and stuff. And, they, and they'd be like, you know, they know that I have a relationship with Springsteen and I got Pearl Jam and I got Fish and I've got Dave Matthews and Foo Fighters. And they will be like, you know, we're making a trip from, you know, Italy and, and, you know, are you going to be open? And so, uh, <laughs> we were, you know, so long story short is, uh, it's been three years uh. and we've been there and they love having us there and it works for us. It works for them. And, and subsequently it's helped me, get this music festival off the ground that I, my friend Tim Donnelly and I had had 
in our back pocket for many years. Like we, we, you know, we were doing small, like art, music, surf events on the boardwalk when it was fairly empty before Asbury started to take off. You could take your pick and say, can we throw a little party in this, in this, you know, little office space uh, right on the boardwalk. And we would have, you know, musicians and, you know, uh, surfers art. And, uh, you know, um, we just have a big hang there and we called it See Here Now. And uh, my friend Tim came up with the idea. He's got, he's got a great head for that kind of stuff. And, and then we, um, it went so well. And as things started to build um, in Asbury Park, we thought, wouldn't it be a great to do a music festival on the beach? We'll see here now, surfing, music, art, right? And uh, and so another friend of us, a friend of ours, H.M. Woolman, who was like, used to manage My Chemical Romance and worked at Q Prime and was like a, you know, really had a good business sense and was a surfer and a big music fan. We teamed up and we were like, let's put a deck together and let's start pitching this thing. And we took it out and we pitched it everywhere. And uh, we got some people, oh, that's a cool idea. You know, well, yeah, okay, you know. And um, and then ran into my friend Tim Sweetwood, who works at C3, who puts on Lollapalooza and Austin City Limits and that. And um, we had just seen uh, Mumford & Sons, another band that gives back to its mm. community. And they did this thing called Gentlemen of the Road. And they did it in Seaside, New Jersey, right after Sandy and right after uh, we had a big fire down there a couple of years ago. And they came in and they put on a concert there because they knew it would bring a lot of money to the community. And when they did and they came through and it was very boutique, it was very, it was very cool. It was curated in a great way. And the bands that they chose were bands that we loved, that we felt. And it was, it, it went over really well. And we were like, man, we can, we, we were re-inspired, mentioned it to Tim Sweetwood. And he was the only person to say to us, so, you know, yeah, it's pretty cool. Like, let me come to Asbury Park and have a look. Yeah. And he came down and he looked around and it's, it's beautiful. It's Art Deco. It's on the beach. We want to do it in September. The weather's always beautiful. And there had been concerts there before and um, they were much bigger than what we wanted to do. And so he basically bought it to his partners at C3. We decided to do it. And our first year, we put 25,000 people, almost 25,000 people on the beach there. Um, three stages. We had Jack Johnson. It was a very surf, you know, oriented music, art. Jack Johnson, we had Incubus. We had G Love and Ben Harper mm, and like people like that. And then we went in like younger, like Milky Chance and Kaleo. And well, we had Blondie and we had some reggae with the Wailers and Social Distortion and this and that, like really a nice kind of mix. And we also had male and female pro surfers there who would surf during the day, like while the bands were playing. Mm. And it was called Expression Sessions. And they'd go in and they were, you know, who could be the most entertaining out yeah, there. It's like and, X games yeah, on water kind yeah. of. Like, and yeah. they could win like a thousand bucks at the end of, at the end of the day. And some of the money went to charity, or whatever. And and it was like it was really awesome. And the other thing we did was we created um an art gallery and I curated art from the musicians that were playing the festival. So we went to Ian from Deer Tick and he paints these incredible portraits. And we went to Jack Johnson, he did surf films and G Love was doing these huge art pieces and um it just all these people contributed their art um clint majin from preservation hall jazz band etc and and then you know the artists would come in and talk about their art just really quickly a very short interview and then maybe play a couple of songs and so this year we you know everybody kind of trusted us after 
the first year. And when we did our on sale, without even announcing the lineup, we sold a lot of tickets. And then we announced our lineup, which was Dave Matthews Band and the Lumineers as the headliners. And uh, Tickets gone, I bet. It was it. It was over. And it didn't hurt that last year, Bruce Springsteen showed up and sat in with Social Distortion. (laughs) I'm I'm sure they didn't hurt at all. I, mean, I was I was nudging him. I was like, "Hey, man, don't forget our festivals <laughs> come up. Oh, and you know, Mike Ness is going to be there with Social Distortion." I mean, it's amazing that it's like you're you just keep following threads that feel good to you, and and kind of like let it go where it needs to go. And also, yeah. I mean, it sounds like such a powerful testament to your recognition of how important it is to participate, to be a part of a community, to give back. And to associate yourself with people, mm-hmm. kind of see the world similarly, because um, I think people feel that you know, like they rise to come and collaborate and, and co-create in um, in a way that you know, if it were for a different reason, it would be a, a totally different uh, equation. Yeah. So, um, I mean, hanging out with you today, um, we're in New York City. You've been doing this thing for a solid chunk of time. It's called Good Life Project we come full circle and I offer out the phrase to you to live a good life. What comes up? Um, you know, I'm 55 and I've been hustling my ass off for a long time. And I've learned that, you know, hard work pays off and it allows you to, um, appreciate, you know, I was going to say my downtime, but like, I appreciate what I'm doing all the time. So the, the good life for me is, is to work hard and love what I'm doing to get to spend time with your family and to inspire other people and to give back to the community. That's living the good life to me. Like I, I love where I came from on the Jersey shore. You know, you could give me a, uh, a, you know, a longboard and a bicycle and, uh, you know, my family, uh, in the ocean right there. And I'd be like happy as I could be in my harmonicas, I guess, <laughs> mm. which I never leave home without, and, you know, that's living the good life for me, you know, and I, I've been, you know, I play music, you know, I play in this Tangiers blues band and it's really, that happened by, by accident. And, um, and just allowing yourself to, to follow those happy accidents, you know, um, make a big difference to me. Like I, like I was photographing, um, do you have time for me to talk and tell you some more yeah, stories? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so early on in my career, I was photographing uh, Blind blind Melon and I became friends with them. And one time, you know, I had my grandfather had played harmonica and I had a harmonica as a kid. And I, I, you know, when I was assisting with my friend Timothy, he was really into blues and I, I didn't know that I loved the blues. I knew I loved the Allman Brothers and you know, Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. And like, I had heard of Muddy Waters, but like they really taught me, you know, and introduced me to, you know, Hal and Wolf and uh, Sonny Boy Williamson and Little Walter. And like, you know, even like, you know, deep James Brown and, you know, and, and R&B and Ray Charles and all that. And and I really started to love it. And so I started to play harmonica. One time I told Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon that um, I played harmonica just casually, you know, during one of the, one of the shows I had, they were the, they were the band really that let me, let me, you know, in to photograph like famous band that was like, I cut my teeth, like hanging out with them and photographing. 
And so he said, uh, oh man, you know, you play harmonica. You should come up and play with us tonight. And they were like, they were opening for, it was Blind Melon Soundgarden and Neil Young. Wow. And it was in New Jersey at the art center. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not coming out there. And I'm not, you know, <laughs> I said, I, I, I played like once in public, like at a barbecue. <laughs> and he was like, Danny, it's all one big barbecue. Like you're going to come out and, and play with us. I was like, okay. And I'm thinking he's not going to remember. And so um, we kind of woodshed it on the song. And it was like a song called Change. And then they would like segue into like a Dear Mr. Fantasy Blues kind of thing, which I was comfortable playing blues. And I ended up doing it and going out there and like, and I, and I didn't really screw it up. You know, like I actually like, you know, you're in a key and it's a key and I ducked in and out and I was like, wow, I was like, really like buzzing after that and uh so i ended up learning wanting to play more harmonica and every time i hung out with them i would play with them and then i was hired to photograph this band called danger man and they um they asked me to come up to their recording studio uh or rehearsal space rather to um to just you know talk about the you know the uh the photo shoot and what we were going to do and how we were going to do it and where we were going to do it and I got there and they had all these Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker posters up there. And the guy was standing there just playing like he was like obsessed with his guitar. He just had it on the whole time we were talking and was playing these little blues riffs. And I was like, oh, you guys play blues? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I said, I play a little harmonica. And they're like, oh, wow, let's, like, let's, have, let's have a jam sometime. So long story short, and like 25 years later, we have the Tangiers Blues Band and we play in all that we've played, you know, for 25 years together. And, uh, and subsequently a lot of the artists that I've become friends with have sat in with the blues band. When I have my book, my still moving book release party, Tangier's blues band played and we had Perry Farrell sat in with us, uh, Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters, Zach Brown. And then like, you know, Brandy Carlisle sat in with us, Prez Hall jazz band, you know, Bob Weir and, um, you know, Joseph Arthur and Jesse Mallon and, just like it goes on and on. So uh, we had often hoped that we could get Bruce Springsteen to sit in with us. And it just so happened that there was an opening for the Asbury Lanes, which is like a legendary uh, like bowling alley slash music venue in, in Asbury Park. And we heard Bruce was going to kind of emcee the, the opening. And uh, they asked the Tangiers Blues Band to play. And also Portugal the Man was playing. And so... Bruce, I had sp spoken with his his team and they said, look, you know, he's doing the Broadway show and like, I don't expect him to get up and jam with anybody. I just want you to know that's probably not going to happen. So a week out, I get a text from Bruce and he said, uh, hey man, uh, I'm thinking maybe I'll sit in with, with, with your band. <laughs> I was like, I said, okay, uh, what are we going to do? What do you want to do? And he was like, well, blues, you know? And I was like, well, okay. Like, you know, twist and shout. And he was like, down the road a piece. And I like... <laughs> We were going back and forth, like, uh, with different tunes. And um, he agreed to do it. We, of course, were like, of course. And uh, so he texts me a little while later. And he's like, uh, we having a rehearsal or what? And I was like, well, yeah, how about Wednesday? Okay. You know, and he's like, meanwhile, he's got a gig, you know, at the, you know, on Broadway, <laughs> I think, that night. And so we did a rehearsal for the rehearsal and played through all the tunes and, uh, and then he came in and, uh, you know, supposed to be there at five o'clock. He was there at like four fifty-five, you know, put on his guitar. And I was like, how's it feel to put electric guitar on, you know? 
and play with a band. And he was like, yeah, let's do this. And uh, he just raised the energy in the room, like through the roof. And it was, it was, it was quite incredible. And uh, funny enough, like halfway through the rehearsal, you know, of course, we're in the room with Bruce Springsteen and everybody's eyes are on him because he's leading the band. And we're just, we can't even believe we're, we're, we're doing this, you know? And I realized that like a handful of people are not looking at Bruce and they're all looking like in the corner. And I had my back to the door and I, like I turn around and, and there's Sting standing there because <laughs> he was rehearsing next door to us. And like, he comes in, he's like, Hey Bruce, I heard the Oh, Danny. And I, I've worked with him, you know? And anyway, it was like really surreal. Like Sting walks in and like says hello to Bruce and we all say hello. And it was kind of crazy. And then he came and sat in with us there and he sat in with us. At, I was um, the honoree for the Kristen Ann Carr Fund event this past year. And we raised a significant amount of money, which is really incredible to be a part of it. And uh, of course, we had a guitar out for Bruce because he usually shows up. And uh, I said, hey, man, uh, you know, we, we woodshedded those other tunes that we had done. Uh, the last time. So if you want to play, you know, there's, there's a guitar there for you. So we had this guitar there and then our guitar player, Chris, who leads the band, he's a great guy, had his Fender, like Telecaster, like a f early fifties, like mm. Bruce loves to play. And when Bruce went to grab the other guitar, Chris stuck his guitar in his hand. I was like, here's my guitar. And Bruce was like, oh, cool. Wow. Bruce was checking it out. Like, damn, this is nice. And we proceeded to uh, like, have a big throwdown, and uh, and everybody was uh, quite happy that he came and sat in with us. But no one was more happier <laughs> than I was. Man, that sounds amazing. Yeah, that, that sounds like a a good life. <laughs> uh, yes, that's the good life right there. Any chance you have your uh, harmonica on you? I do have a harmonica with me. You play a little bit? Sure. Thank you so That's much. That's my uh, Junior Wells riff. I stole it early on when I learned learned to play, and I just hung on to it. <laughs> well, you wear it well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.